and welcome to the Fizzle Show. <laughs> this is, of course, the Fizzle Show, our chance to help freelancers, creatives, and indie entrepreneurs by sharing the nuts and bolts of building a small business that works. Every Friday, we publish another conversation about the art and science of supporting yourself doing something you care about. Your hosts are Barrett Brooks, Steph Crowder, Corbett Barr, and me, Chase Reeves. We all are the team behind Fizzle.co, a website full of training courses to help you run a small business, and more importantly, where you'll find the community of entrepreneurs who won't let you quit. Try your first five weeks for free on us when you go to fizzle.co slash try five. In this episode, okay, listen, how you price your product, service, or workshop can have a massive impact on your sales. And unfortunately, it can also lead to a massive anxiety attack. (laughs) In this episode, we lay out seven pricing strategies that you really should know about. And more importantly, though, we share off-the-cuff, brutally honest ideas about how to price your offering. So whether it's your first time putting something up for sale or you're an old pro, the tactics in this conversation are going to help you to get confident about your pricing. Enjoy. Follow along at home at fizzleshow.co slash 124. I'll be back after this conversation to fill in any gaps. And we're back! (laughs) Woo! Ow. Did they get you? (laughs) Got me. Oh, yeah. All right, Barrett, what are we talking about today? Oh, man, you're just going to get right into it, huh? Yeah, come on. The the, the readers are, the the listening, listeners are listening, the readers are reading. It's time to just bounce right into this. We got a big topic today. I feel like you guys have like switched switched roles today. Chase is pretending to be Barrett. Barrett's pretending to be Chase. I'm so confused. Can I pretend to be you? I don't know. Corbett, let's keep it PC, okay? <laughs> God help our listeners if that's true and Chase decides to go back to his normal role. So, Barrett, let's keep it PC, okay? Here's what we are doing today, people. Uh, we got a question from one of our friends. He was uh, talking to his buddy who's an entrepreneur, and his buddy runs workshops. And he was charging $25 for like a half-day workshop or something like that, $25 per seat. And uh, the friend of the show said, man, you are losing out on so much potential money here and you're never going to be able to make a living this way because you're not going to be able to sell enough of these workshop tickets to uh, make a full-time living. So he emailed me and said, hey, do you have an episode on pricing strategy? And it turns out we didn't yet. And so today the topic is on pricing strategy and the many different ways you can go about pricing your products or your services or your workshops or whatever it is that you're up to out there in your business. So we're going to run through a number of strategies We're going to talk about how you position your product or service uh, before you present the price to someone. And then we're going to talk about how these different strategies apply to a couple different types of products or services you might be selling. How's that sound? Nice. Yeah. And so set us up here. Like, what are the big fears and what are the big risks at stake? Totally. So I think that the most common fear associated with pricing, uh, especially with new entrepreneurs, is that you're charging too much. And that by pricing your product or service too high, you're going to completely price yourself out of the market that nobody's going to like you. Nobody's going to buy your thing. Nobody's going to trust you. And then you're going to fail and then you're going to go bankrupt and then you're going to die. 
And so that's kind of like this path that we follow. <laughs> Jeez, the- I actually really like that. that <laughs> yeah. Was- that was pretty good, Barrett. You're learning. I'm oh, proud man. of you on that one. A little one. melodramatic. Yeah, yeah, that's good. But so, that's kind of where our little brain goes to, right? It's like, if I don't price well, if I don't price this in a way that people are willing to buy it from me, then I'm not going to have a real business on my hands because no one's going to want me or my thing. So I think there are people on the other end of that spectrum as well, though. People who worry that they're not charging enough Definitely. for their thing. And by not charging enough, you're leaving a bunch of money on the table. You know, you're charging... $10, but people would really be willing to pay 100 so you're leaving all of this revenue on the table. Totally. And so in the classic business sense, the goal of pricing is maximizing profits, right? And I think uh, as we see more and more kind of values-based businesses, uh, entrepreneurs like us who choose to price a certain way so that we attract a certain type of customer, you see that it's not always... Hey, uh, Barrett, uh, your boss is calling from the 90s. Yeah, hey, uh, yeah, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday. Who does that? Who, I mean, honestly, who does that? Anyways. Who does what? Evidently, you're, you're uh, I wish I had, father-in-law. I wish I had a home phone, man. Hold on, babe, we got three messages. <laughs> Beep. Hey, this is Okay, keep going, Barrett. Where was I? You were saying uh, classic the, the maximizing pricing, pricing is and maximizing value-based businesses. Okay, value. so some businesses and pricing maximizing. So some <laughs> businesses choose to not just maximize their profits through their pricing strategy, but also to attract a certain type of customer. So there's this interaction between purely pro, uh, profit maximization and also trying to be uh, to attract a certain type of customer. So like with Fizzle, we like pricing our product at a price that's affordable for people are just getting into starting a business. And so for us, $35 is this happy medium between not so cheap that we can't make a living, but also not so expensive that the average person who wants to build a business can't buy it from us. So we're going to get into a lot of the kind of psychology behind this and what you should be thinking about as you're going to price your product or service. Oh my. Love it. Oh all right. So there's a, I, I remember I was reading and doing all the research on this topic and I came across this term and it took me back to my business school days, which was absolutely terrifying. But this one concept I think is actually important. So is there anyone out there who can explain this idea of price elasticity? Ooh, ooh. That's what happens when you get older and they're like cellulite. It's like you're it's like for women, it's different areas than for men. But like, so for me, I realized like I'm never going to lose that like inner tube around my waist. No, that's skin elasticity. Oh, you're thinking of. Mm. Yeah, well, that, mm. yeah, that certainly has a price. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nah, what I mean, let me take a crack, Barrett. So, all right. uh, all right. Now, crack, crack elasticity is another thing. So everybody uh, remembers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody remembers. Uh, supply and demand, right? So there's this idea that uh, you're offering something for sale and there's a certain amount of demand for it. So let's say, for example, that we have something for sale for $10 and at that price, we could sell um, 10 units, okay? So the total profit there, total revenue would be $100. On the other end, let's say that we have linear supply and demand or linear price demand, um, then if we move up the scale and suddenly we start charging $100 for that thing, then we might only sell one copy or whatever, one version of it, um, for a total revenue of $100. So the total revenue in both cases is $100 because our price demand curve isn't a curve at all. It's flat. It's linear. As you move up price, demand falls in lockstep. Um, 
with elasticity of pricing, there's this place where instead of going straight, your uh, demand might actually curve somewhat. So let's say we start charging $50 for this thing. And instead of selling, um, I don't know how the math works out on that, uh, two copies, um, like we thought we would, maybe we can sneak in three or something. So instead of earning $100 in total revenue, we're now earning $150. And so that's the, when you said at the top of the show, like, how are we going to maximize revenue? That's the goal is finding that place where you can raise pricing and demand isn't necessarily affected. So there's this there's this pent up demand there. And even though you're raising pricing, you're not really impacting it. And so therefore, you're earning more total revenue at a higher price. Does that sound about right? Yeah, totally. So the whole idea is like at these different price points, you can sell different amounts of product or services. And the idea is to kind of play with it until you find the ideal combination of demand and price to help you make the most money, right? You got it. So that's this idea of price elasticity. So at the end of the day, that's kind of what we're talking about as we go through these strategies is what's the best strategy for you to use to create the most demand at the highest price for you to make a living in your business. And just keep in mind that this should always dr- be driven by also thinking about what's good for your customers so long as it doesn't come at the expense of you making a living or you being able to build a business around your thing. Yeah. All right, sweet. So um, we talked about kind of this idea of maximizing profits, price elasticity. So that's kind of the businessy, classic MBA type stuff. So I want to talk about right off the top, four or five different concrete pricing strategies and then we're going to talk about how those things get used in terms of business, all right? All so right. first of all is this idea of rate-based pricing, right? Or this idea of cost per hour. So we see this a lot in business. So um, what's like a classic example of, of uh, cost per hour pricing? Uh, well, like, I guess... Coaching, yeah, any, consulting. any single, my design work, your consulting work. Yeah. Everything that where you're working with a client, basically. A lady of the night. You know, just standard rocks in. Wow. Nice. So with rate-based pricing. You don't have to put on a red light. <laughs> I love it. Even when I'm going, Corbett's already mouthing lines. Can't help it. <laughs> it's, it's always He's such better a when Corbett joins in. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, well, just you, keep that in mind. You put Corbett. the fear of God in me, Barrett. I feel like we can't do that stuff. No, 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 no. Is that I like think... saying that he put the fog in you, isn't it? You made him foggy, Barrett. You know, sort of like, why would you do that? Are you sure I, about it? I know, mate. Isn't it? Isn't it, right. though? So, anyways. Uh, Let's get more accents being, from Barrett going. <laughs> two points here. Number one is Corbett should always sing when Chase sings. And the second point is back to rate-based pricing. The idea is you charge, or you're kind of trading time for money, right? I'll work uh, as many hours as you need me to on this project. So, I'm a web designer. Uh you want me to build your website, it's going to cost you 50 bucks an hour for me to build your website. And I'm not really sure how many hours it's going to take, but I promise I'll work as fast as possible. Yeah. So this is kind of like the classic freelancers dilemma where you get into pricing your services based on how much time it takes you. And now in order to earn more money, you have to spend more time because they're directly related, right? Yeah. So that's one pricing strategy. So so the, the uh, upside of that though, is that there's no risk that you're going to end up under charging for your work, 
right? Because if you put an hour in, you're getting paid for it versus project-based pricing, which I'm guessing you're going to get into next. But um, from the client perspective, a lot of times the client's like, oh, wait a second. I, I, I have no idea how many hours this is going to take. And also you get that fear that the incentive is for the freelancer just to take a bunch of time to do the work. And, and as a client, you kind of want to know up front what it's going to cost. Totally. And when you're not like in the same place with the person delivering that kind of service, it's really hard to know and trust them if you don't implicitly trust them with how much time they're actually spending versus how much time they're billing you for. So that's kind of the downside. Like you said, the upside though, is especially when you're getting started and you're not really sure how much time a given project is going to take or where the scope of work is not very well defined up front and the client's okay with that, you know, that might be a good time to use rate-based pricing because it means that you're going to get paid for the amount of time you invest in it. Yep. So, all right, so let's jump over to project-based pricing then. So this is kind of like a jump up the evolutionary scale, especially for freelancers here. And in project-based pricing, the idea is what? Uh, the idea is that you bid a certain amount to Wait, do- Wait, are you turning this into a, a, like, a, a, like a lecture on us? Yeah. Does anybody no. have an Does anybody I'm, know I'm what asking. a project-based pricing? <laughs> yes, Corbett. I love it. <laughs> This is my favorite. Corbett's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. If we could just ooh. play Trivial Pursuit all Pick day. Pick me. Pick me. Oh, oh, over here. Teach. Steph, Steph, why don't you take this one? So with project-based work, basically what you're talking about there is making sure, I think, well, first of all, the really important thing about project-based work is making sure that you're, again, working with a client or whoever the end receiver is to set expectations about what the scope of the project is. So you're upfront agreeing. So just to use maybe Chase's example of design work, for example, if you're going to build a website for somebody, the project is the website and you're deciding upfront what all is going into that project. And then someone is paying a rate based on the scope of that work. So that's, I think, in the ballpark of what I would consider rate-based project work. However, I think the the challenge with that is you really have to make sure up front that everybody's on the same page about what the expectation is of the project because it's very easy for you know the, the client on one end to think they're getting a bunch of features that the person who's rendering the service may not have planned on in the first place. And then all of a sudden, you're adding on all types of work that you might not necessarily be compensated for. Yeah, and, and in that case, so if in the rate-based pricing world, your worry is that the freelancer is just going to take a bunch of time. On the other hand, the freelancer is also very happy to add additional features for you generally. They're like, sure, no problem. We'll add that. If you're doing project-based pricing, then if you get into some of those areas where the features were sort of nebulous, they weren't concretely agreed upon, then suddenly you're fighting the, the freelancer or the contractor to get these additional features in. Yep, totally. So the idea here is basically that if you price based on project, then your incentive as the service provider is to do it as fast as you can, uh, as well as you can, so that the project gets done quickly and you get paid for a smaller amount of time for that project, right? Yep. Cool. All right. So then there's this idea of uh, cost plus pricing. This is going back to those business terms again. Um, but I think the basic idea here is kind of like adding in a built-in margin on top of whatever it is you're spending for this product or service, right? So what are examples, like when I think about this, I think of especially physical products. You know that if you're gonna go out and build, I don't know, standing desks like you just bought, Corbett, there's gonna be a true cost to the materials that go into that. And then there's gonna be labor on top of that that gets built in because you gotta pay the person to assemble the desk or, or whatever to manufacture it. So yep. you know what your costs are for this. And 
if you want to make sure in the same way that you want to make sure you get paid with rate-based pricing, if you're a service provider, if you want to make sure you make your money back on your product that you're making, then if you use cost plus pricing, you say, okay, we spent this much and we're going to add a margin of 20%. So we guarantee we're going to make a 20% margin because that's how we, we found our price. Right. Yeah. And they got so many great like tables from that. Just have that rustic look. You know what I mean? We're talking about cost plus world market, right? Cost plus. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Terrific stuff. Great cookies selection. Yeah. Hello. From all around the world. I uh-huh. mean, tables and cookies. And you can buy some beer if you want. At the same you pr- time. Hey, I'll tell you what that is. That's priceless right there. Are you kidding me? You want to put a price on that? You get a cookie and a table at the same time? Come on. That's the thing I never understood about cost plus. Come on. You, you know what I mean? You buy a, a table and then you can get some wine. At some the same McVitie's. Time. I want some McVitie's. You kidding me? So it's an interesting point because do you think that their whole place is just they add a margin of 10% or something and that's just how they do everything? <laughs> I have no idea. It's good that you mention that, isn't it? Because cost plus pricing, you know, it's a bit like project-based pricing plus cost, you know what I mean? So you've got the both of them, don't mm-hmm, you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's now good. Confu- Thanks now for that. Now we're getting confused. For that. Yeah. <laughs> just make sure, just keep adding value, okay? Speaking so, of value... Um, yep. Let's talk about value-based pricing. So this is like the hot oh, wait, man, topic. I, I don't I don't understand why we're making this so damn complicated. All you got to do is add a nine to the end of your price tag, right? So instead of charging ninety dollars, charge eighty nine. That is the that is the secret. I mean, why are we making this so damn complicated, Barnett? I think you're right, Barnett. Barnett. <laughs> I'm sorry. What's your young young man? What's your name? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, so value-based pricing. So. Um, in terms of value-based pricing, this one's gotten really popular lately, especially in kind of this online business world, because people were going through this process of saying, all right, I'm charging X dollars per hour. And then they kind of graduated to, well, I'm going to start charging based on projects because I know how much time it takes me to design an average website or to, you know, whatever, copyright for a website or uh, whatever services they were providing. And then people figured out that if there's more value provided to whoever their customer is, than they're currently charging, then it there's an opportunity there to charge more or to structure their pricing higher if the other person is willing to pay more for that service. Even though, so let's say like for project-based pricing, you say, all right, I think this project's gonna cost me 10 hours of work time. And normally on a rate-based uh, pricing project, I would charge $100 an hour. So it's gonna take me 10 hours hundred dollars an hour. Well, I should just charge a thousand dollars for this project. And then I'll just try and get it done faster than 10 hours and everything will be good. Well, with value-based pricing, maybe it's only going to take you 10 hours and, uh, or, but maybe your customer values the website they get out of that by, I don't know, maybe they'll pay $5,000 for it. And so, whereas with a project-based price solely based on how much time you're going to commit to it, you would say a thousand dollars with value-based pricing. It's saying for this type of person in my audience, I know that they're willing to pay $5,000 for the website, for the outcome they're going to get from this project. And so I'm going to price at that level, despite the fact that it's only costing me 10 hours of work. So this is kind of the the pinnacle, especially for services, because it means that you're getting the maximum value from the audience you've chosen. So a lot of this is dependent on audience too, when it comes to value-based pricing. So I'm curious, have y'all seen examples or like, do you, do any come to mind uh, examples of value-based pricing out there, especially in this like online business world we run in? Well, one of the, I mean, I, st- I used a similar way of uh, working with clients when I was doing website stuff, because for instance, if I would work with a uh, contractor or plumber, 
um, I could basically evaluate what what a lead from their website is worth, right? And say, I can get you more leads to your website, mm-hmm. right? Um, because, because it'll communicate clear, the conversion's going to be more, and it's going to be optimized for search and right. all this other stuff, right? And you're, they're going to land on you, and you're going to feel trustworthy, right? So for all these reasons, I can say, well, how much is your standard job or a relationship with a customer worth? What's your lifetime uh, value of a customer? Uh, and and then kind of like negotiate my price from there. And that's what normally I would do that as like a kind of price anchoring to set some big number up there. So this is worth this much to you, but I'm only charging you this. And you're trying to, yeah. So you're trying to build up the perceived value and yeah. hope that your pitch includes that. Whereas everybody else you're talking to is just talking about the, they're just the like, features. yeah, it'll take me like 10 hours yeah. or something. So I guess probably like yeah. a couple thousand dollars, you know, that, that's right. how I worked for a long time. Yeah. And it took, it's like, so it's, it, it takes nothing to to figure out how much it's worth to them you know and it it changes everything and so in the you've talked about rate-based and project-based and um i forget what the third one was plus cost plus yeah so but when you're talking about digital goods there is no like rate necessarily there is no cost going into it so for fizzle for example it's the kind of thing and software and uh if you're selling an ebook or whatever there are there is some total cost built into it but you don't know how many copies you're going to sell. So it's pretty hard to break that down into, yeah. you know, I'm going to sell 10 of these, so I got to divide it by 10, blah, blah, blah. Um, so instead, you kind of assume that it's like a make once, sell many, many times sort of thing. Yeah. And you're entirely basing it on what you think someone's value of this thing is. It's based on your ability to sell them on that value. And it's based on what the competitors might be charging in your space. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah. So I think most digital goods fit under the value-based pricing in in some ways, uh, there because you're like you just mentioned a couple of the other things that are coming up between competitive pricing, luxury pricing, and tiered pricing. So Barrett, maybe you want to take us through that really quick before totally. we, so uh, before we lose everybody listening to the show because we've become an MBA appendix. Well, I think it's just good to go through the, you know the high level strategies before we talk more in our typical terms. So you know a couple more are competitive pricing. So Corby, you kind of brought this up where in competitive pricing you're looking across the landscape of who you consider your competitors to be. So like for Fizzle, that would be looking at other business training sites or other business training products um, and seeing how much they're charging for whatever it is that they're selling to our same customer base or to our same potential customers. And we would look at kind of the high end of the scale. So in our case, maybe the high end of the scale is like products that cost thousands of dollars and people buy only one time. And then maybe at the lowest end of the scale, I don't know, maybe there's like a $5 a month product or something like that, where somebody's charging a lot less than us, but theoretically teaching the same thing. So from our customer's standpoint, they're evaluating all these different options along this sliding scale of price to see which one's the best one for me uh, as far as business training is concerned and how much am I willing to pay. And so in competitive pricing, you'd say, all right, there's my two bookends. Now, where do we want to fit on this scale and what kind of person or what kind of customer is that going to attract? And so truly, instead of like with value-based pricing, that's all about getting into the customer's head. With competitive pricing, it's all about getting into your competitor's business and making sure that you can compete with them solely based on price. Yep. So with this model- No, this no, is, I think it's not It's not so much that as it is because you're still trying to get in the customer's head, but you're just doing so through the comparison with the other options on the market. Yeah, and you're just figuring that your customers are evaluating you based on yeah. what they, how they see you This fit. stick of gum is, is $5, that yeah. stick of gum is $4.50. This like, iPhone versus that. Right, know, and same, so- that Samsung would, something. Yeah. <laughs> that can be valuable when your customers are evaluating you against other options. 
But yeah. in other cases, your customers are just evaluating you against nothing. It's it's yes or no on fizzle versus fizzle or this or that. Yeah, so but, that, but what's and so I think as you mentioned in the beginning, I mean, really the biggest fears that we're talking about here, the biggest fears and, and the biggest worries that we've seen in around the concept of pricing are based on how do I as the entrepreneur feel about this price, right? Because right. most people who are yeah. who are you know analytical and smart about these kinds of who, the engineering brain types, they'll just like well I'll see what the market will bear and they'll d- 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 you know put together some tests to see what the market will bear and get to the price yeah. you know as high as it can go. But most they, people have these like weird emotional icky feelings. Yeah, about most people pricing. are regular people who care about people, yeah. <laughs> and so and and there's just something fun. I mean, we I think are from this kind of like more village based thing where it's really hard to say like right. I, I'm going to charge you for this rather than just fleece, give it to you. If you're fleecing a bunch of customers yeah. in a village, then everybody knows that you're an. And, and if you're and if you grew up in New York and and you've been hustling your whole life, like you know that that's the name of the game. Yeah. But if you if you're you know you had a pretty good mom and dad and a pretty good upbringing, and it's like people what, are generally nice. You don't you don't have that in New York. What are you saying? Yeah, no, you don't have that. In New York. Everybody from New York doesn't have that. You know that, right? <laughs> Jesus, you know that. Oh right? man, wait, that's like for sure, right? You know that, Barrett. Same. Okay, so um, bringing it back here. <laughs> so I mean, just watch thing, any Spike Lee movies. <laughs> the downside of competitive pricing oftentimes is that when you get into a price war with a competitor, that's what drives costs down. And so it's beneficial to customers sometimes. You know, but, sometimes in the industry, we call that a race to the bottom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Good, Chase. That's a good impression there. I appreciate the application of that impression to that term. It creates a race to the bottom and then nobody wins. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know what's so great, Barrett? Your name is Barry, right, young man? Yes, yes. Okay, what's so great about you is how you're driving this conversation. I could just sense like a strong leadership quality in you. So much and, leadership. And I, me and the and my and my other friends here in the uh, in the in the Trump cabinet are real, real oh excited God. to see what it's going to be like to, when I you grow good up. Good news, Chase. I have very good news. There's only two more, and I'll hustle through them. So number one is, or, or the next one is luxury pricing. So luxury pricing is what Louis Vuitton. And uh, I don't know, name your car company, Porsche, and whatever other luxury brands you can think Thank of. Thank you for pronouncing Porsche right. Yeah. You're so, welcome. So in that case, the the utility of the good is sort of separate from the value that you feel the brand confers to you somehow. Yeah, right? you're not right. you're not buying you're not buying uh, toilet paper because you don't have any toilet paper. You're buying like the best possible toilet paper. Yeah. Because and it so makes you feel is, good. Or, it's yeah. kind of like a signaling device, right? It's aspirational. It says something about you that you drive a Porsche or that you wear this or carry that or whatever. And yep. so many times Well, first of all, I mean Louis Vuitton stuff just vanity, but a Porsche is the person who understands quality, craftsmanship, uh-huh. you know. Mm. Uh, uh, the the it's all in the eye of the beholder. The turning of a of a, but it still just gets you to the grocery store and back. You make a good point. All right, a bike also does that. So luxury pricing is all about uh, image and how people see themselves and what they want to look like in the world. And then the last one here is tiered pricing, and tiered pricing is not necessarily an alternative to these other ones, right? Like it's not value based pricing or tiered pricing. It's not competitive pricing or tiered pricing. But tiered pricing is a kind of way to allow people to not make a decision of yes or no between your product or not. It's a way to allow your potential customers to compare different versions of your product and make a choice between them. 
And, and, I, and you know what? Just to just to help people out there, because this is you know an audio program. When he's saying a tiered pricing, he's not talking about crying tears. You no. know, even though sometimes it can feel like that. You know, when you are putting your price together on your sales page, it can be sad. You can be just ripping out your your so, eardrums and tear ducts. So tiered tiered pricing to me, um, Barrett, maybe is in a bit of a different category. It's almost like a pricing tactic that you can layer on any of those others. Yeah, totally, exactly. It's like it's because all it is 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 offering. Uh, a different option for your this stick of gum is worth is cost five dollars but this stick of gum with uh uh you know interviews with experts of gum chewers is 397 dollars <laughs> video. <laughs> video interviews yeah i see what you did there um all right so we talked about uh rate-based pricing project-based pricing <laughs> i want to do that <laughs> this stick of gum is worth, it got, i'll send uh, it to you right now a dollar I can sense the website coming out. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it's going to be. Did you guys see Smeagling.biz, by the way? Oh, my God. I can't oh, wait. No. I did. I did. Okay. See it. <laughs> so, quick rundown of the pricing strategies we covered, and then we're going to get into the good stuff. Rate it just based- shows how many people actually pay attention to the show notes because I actually put that in the show notes of that episode. <laughs> okay. Keep going, Baronek. <laughs> Rate based pricing, man? project based pricing, cost plus pricing, value based pricing competitive pricing, luxury pricing, and then kind of a pricing tactic that we called tiered pricing. So these are different ways that you can price your product, different strategies you can use here. Now let's talk about how this applies to business. So we got to kind of dial it back some because you don't just go straight from a customer landing on your website to them seeing the price of your product, ideally, right? So before they ever see the price, ideally they're going to understand what we talk about as like a unique selling proposition or a value proposition. So Corbett, I think you kind of wrote the the post on this at Fizzle. So when you think about unique selling proposition, what is that and why does it matter? It's really just an answer to the question that a customer is asking themselves when they land on your website, which is, why should I care about this versus every other thing in this category that exists in the world? So um, if it's a podcast, for example, they land on your podcast description and they're thinking to themselves, why should I care about this podcast? Why does it matter versus the other ones? So a unique selling proposition is really your answer to that. And it should make you stand out. It should differentiate you from everyone else that's out there and give someone a, a strong or compelling reason to hit play or hit the buy button or enter their email in the box or whatever it is you're trying to get them to do. And by the way, in the show notes, what I'll do is there's there's two articles that we have that are just um, old school epic articles uh, from the man, the myth, Corbett Barr, all on USP. One of them is, is 10 examples of killer unique selling propositions on the web. And the other one is the ultimate guide to finding your unique so, selling proposition. So like, for example, um, just before we started this podcast, Chase and I were talking, as we do, about nerdy stuff like... Uh, Markdown enabled writing apps that are also compatible with Dropbox for iOS. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started just kind of looking and Chase is like, whoa, 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 hold on. He's like, you should do some research because there's a lot of them. So I Googled and uh, came across this article. And I would guess there are no fewer than 80 mm-hmm. different apps listed here. Yeah. And um, just imagine how friggin' hard it is to stand out in that sea of 80 different ones. Yeah. And that, and that's th- those are writing apps. Now, think about like your blog or your podcast. You're one of thousands or tens of thousands yeah. or hundreds of thousands out there. So you really have to have a good answer, mm-hmm. a unique selling proposition. Yeah. And so same thing goes, you know, it's not just your blog or your podcast. Same thing goes for your product or service. I think 
So when I hear you talk about this, it's like, oh, okay. So my goal with my unique selling proposition or my value proposition is to make it a choice between, you know, do I hire this person or not? Or which of these possible products or services from this person do I choose to buy as opposed to, you know, do I hire them or them or them or them or them? It's kind of like that first decision point where you say, I'm better, my product's better because of X, Y, and Z, and therefore you should be buying this one. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, ideally you're like Chase was talking earlier about, you know, uh, making pitches to plumbers to build websites for, um, or whatever. The goal is to build up the value in their mind so much that when they finally see the price, they're like, oh yeah, let's do it. You know, instead of like, what? Yeah. How is it that expensive? Mm -hmm. So that's a hole that's pretty hard to dig. Which I think, I mean, so, so Barrett, help help me understand where you want to go next. All right. So now what we're kind of getting towards is how do you communicate value to people before they ever see your price so that they're prepared to make a decision? So the the idea being that like pricing is not the only thing that matters when it comes to whether or not a person's going to buy your product. So there's these other qualities or other characteristics on a sales page or information presented around the product or service that people need to have before they're even willing to consider your pricing strategy. And it- I, that that's a really good point, Barry, because I think a lot of people think of pricing in isolation. They're only thinking about their product and the value that they believe it brings. Mm. But the price that you set on your product ultimately really depends on how well you communicate that value to other people. Now, the price that you set is the price that you get. And people are forgetting this again and again, Corbett. I'm glad you said it. Thank you. Thank you. So, Chase, you're going to be really happy about this, okay? I'm I'm going to throw you a bone here, and we're going to completely rely on your expertise. Are you ready? <laughs> Excellent. I, I love your enthusiasm. So um, you have to translate from you knowing your value proposition or your unique selling proposition to being able to communicate that to your customers, right? And the way we do that in online business is through design and copywriting, which is kind of your specialty, Chase. So when you think about building, designing, writing a sales page that's going to present or a product page, uh, maybe in the e-commerce world, What's some of the information, like how do you use these tools at your disposal of copywriting and design and testimonials and these other elements to communicate the value proposition of your product or service? Well, first of all, I use them. It's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> Second of all, I do it really I do it really well. Like whenever you can, like try to do it really well instead of poorly. That's a huge like I see people doing it poorly all the time and, and that's yeah. when I go like, oh here, let's do it well instead. All right, um, so hold on. Stop right there. Because in your mind, you just thought of like a hundred examples of things done poorly. And our audience is like, oh, thanks, Chase. Well, that's cool that you're so talented that you know what's done poorly and what's done well. I don't understand that. So when you think of poorly, um, what does that represent to you? Like what are qualities of done poorly here? Well, okay. First of all, it should be said that that we have a whole, I put together a whole course on this within Fizzle. It's called The Essentials of Web Design for Business Builders. It's not for people who know how to design. It's for the opposite. It's for people who are building products, people who are building websites, or, or trying to grow an audience around their podcast or around a Gumroad product or their email list or something like that. It, it kind of runs you through all of the process of this stuff, thinking about color, thinking about typography, thinking about layout, thinking about resource page, thinking about structure of your site and all this other crap, right? So first of all, if you are serious about this, you have to take that course. And right now, are we, well, we can go, you can go to fizzle.co slash try five, try five. And what are you going to get there? You're going to get, get five weeks for free. So that's five weeks. And I could just kick the tires and cancel anytime. Anytime. You can do whatever you want. You okay. could leave, you could leave a day later. 
You could wait to day 29 or you can stick around. It's up to you. So I could, and I could do this whole course in that time, you think? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And you, you I could do probably do course. more courses? Probably. You could probably blow through a good handful of courses if you, you want to. You could definitely start build and launch a website in that 30 days if you were dedicated well i've been drug free for about 13 days now so i'm not gonna be blowing anything you know what i mean (laughs) anyways what was the question all right so listen doing things poorly um when i so so what i love about design and copywriting is what i'm so sensitive to in it is trust is I think what the biggest thing that we're dealing with when when someone lands on a website uh, and it just looks like every every other website out there and you're trying to sell me something it might even be something that I actually need but I need to know that if I give you this money for this thing I have to trust you that you're going to deliver on the thing yeah right so price is a part of that price is a huge part of that it, and and how you set up that price is is almost more important to me than the price for most of us you know, lower to upper middle class people in in America or the Western world or the or the non developing world. You know, we have some extra money to spend, and we spend it on crap all the time. Right, right. So why why are we spending it on so much crap? Well, because we trust Amazon, and it gets here in two days. And you, you know what I mean. In some ways, they have a built well, in trust mechanism. Yes, for some but of these also things. because we believe that the the product. The individual yep. product that we're buying is going to so deliver I'm, something. And so you're you're going you're reading a website, uh, internet website about uh, about these markdown apps, right? Yep. And someone wrote that, and someone's probably going to go like, if I was going to go with one right now, I'd go with this one. Yeah. And you'd probably listen to that person if it was Jason Snell or some other tech writer that you know about. That is an endorsement that is worth far more than anything else you can put on your web website. You know what I mean? And so it, it it goes further than just what you'd put on your website, but all of it adds up to just, do I trust this enough to take a chance on it? That's why, you know, a 30-day money-back guarantee is so effective because it's like, oh, I can just get my money right back if it doesn't work. Right. Right? And it's kind of like a fail-safe on the, on the trust thing. Exactly. So, so to, bring, to reel this conversation in around pricing... Um, there's a few things that I that I see. I, I feel like we should tell our story about when we shifted our pricing and why. You mentioned it briefly up up top, Barrett. Is it okay if I tell that story? Totally, yeah. So we originally, when we launched Fizzle, we started at two price tiers, okay? Because all of the research in the world talks about how you have to have at least two, if not three tiers to your pricing because when you're doing online sales like this, it just makes a huge difference. So we did it. We had $29 for the basic membership and $49 for the deluxe membership. And there were some differences between what you got. Um, but over time, and that worked fine. We had, we had, we were basically, what were we split, split right down the middle, if I remember the correctly. Yeah. Um, over time though, what it felt weird was that like fizzle really represents this democratic sort of like, we're all in this together. It's such a gnarly thing to, to try to build your business, take so much bravery. I love all these people. Why would you draw a line between them mm-hmm. that you can only, only these kinds of people can access this content? Well, and specifically because we have this, the, a big part of fizzle is the community. Yeah. And so people are in there interacting with one another yeah. and then it causes these weird conversations. If it was just courses, if we had like two tiers of courses, if we had no community, basic stuff and advanced stuff, I wouldn't have any problem drawing a line between between you've graduated now. If you want the other courses, it's this much money. That's not so it's not a problem of of asking for money asking for what what it's worth. For us, it was it was this real muddy water in the in the forums about like this community. Yeah. And 
so the, the, the goal of the tiered pricing is that you allow people to kind of select which price they're most comfortable with. So hopefully that maximizes revenue. Barrett said right? it when, when you now all of a sudden, when you have two pricing price options, it's not a question of if I'm buying this or not, it's a question of which one am I choosing? Right. That's what, so, so, so that's what the theory is. That's what the theory is. That's but, what, and then you, and you can, you can crank those widgets too. You can crank those knobs too hard. Mm-hmm. You can, you can make mistakes in offering a tier pricing that makes less people buy your thing. Yeah. But by and large, if you do it pretty smart and if you kind of fiddle with things to get it to the, to optimize it, it can be r- really effective. It can be, or, or that's the idea. The, the problem with this is it's like really hard to test the two at the same time. We yeah. can't test like a $35 price and a tier of $29 and $49 very effectively at the same time on the same customer. So you yeah. never really know. Mm-hmm. This is all just pricing theory. Yeah. So another thing that plays into that is this idea of anchoring. And Barrett is probably going to get into this at some point anyway, but I'm just going to steal your thunder. So the other reason why they think tiered pricing works is because of anchoring. So you have one tier that's really high say it's like $200, but you have a couple of other tiers that are much lower. And so you're looking at those lower tiers and you're thinking, well, if that high tier is worth $200 and I can get like the middle one for $80, then that must be a pretty good value. It kind of like, it sets this thing in your mind. So, so anyway, for us, when we switched from 29 and 49 to just 35, we didn't see a dramatic impact on our conversion rate. Mm -hmm. We're testing apples and oranges a little bit because we were testing, you know, for a couple of months and then we switched and we, we observed for a couple of months after that. And it's not, exactly accurate ab testing yeah but we didn't see a, a big effect there yeah yeah so we decided we chose against the research and for you know for it just it just felt right for Sim- the product and simplicity of the product as well exactly in in software you know if you're tiering the pricing based on features and usage mm-hmm. so you know if you use ten thousand api calls it's this price if you use a hundred thousand it's this price mm-hmm. The tiering makes a lot of sense, right? It's clear in the customer's mind why these things are different. If you're tiering based on some arbitrary idea like, well, this content is special, so it's only available if you're paying extra, then the customer's like, well, wait a second. Like it, it kind of, you know, so yeah. I think it makes tiered pricing a little less effective if it's, if it feels arbitrary. It has to feel, and this is something that's consistent across the research about pricing stuff. The psychology of pricing stuff is, is there's all of these rules. I'll put, I'll link to an article. There's a really great, um, hub or help scout article that goes through 10 of these little, like, you know, pricing tweaks and research bits. And all of them are great. They all they all started from some little hunch or idea, and then they did this thing. But then in each and every one of them, there's like a yeah, but you can do it too much, and so you end up the, the sum total of all the research is just be a human, figure things out, like talk to your customers. Like you, it, it's not that difficult. That's what's that's where where I constantly want to take this conversation is I look at the entrepreneur going like not selling their things because they're frustrated. They're they're frustrated about what price to put on it, right? And that's that's the big error. The big error is not charging too much or charging too little. The big error is not charging anything at all because you're either too afraid to put the price up or you don't know how to charge the value of your work or or whatever, right? And you can work, the price changes can happen over time. Not that tough. It's not that difficult. And I think one of the things that's really helpful for me to think about is the pricing of something when you're just starting out. I think a lot of entrepreneurs go like, what's the price going to be forever? When really the answer is, or the question, the real question is, what's the price going to be on this for the introductory mo- first month that I offer it? Then you get to say, all right, we've offered it at this price for a month. We've decided to move the price up based on the initial results, and it's going to this now. 
for the next six months. So you can totally change your price over time. Um, and and one of the pieces of research is, is if you are going to be changing your price, if you have a lot of customers that are already buying and it's a subscription-based kind of thing, change it in increments of like 10%, either up or down. It's the price percent change that either customers don't notice or they notice and they don't care that much about, mm-hmm. right? So so suffice it to say, when you choose something, you're not, you're not painting yourself into a corner. You're not like putting your feet in cement shoes or anything like that. You can change all this over time. So when I think of pricing strategies that are going to help you like price your stru- your product, the first thing is like, we got to get this thing out the door in a way that you feel comfortable about it. And now, um, Barrett, you were talking about about some design and copywriting type stuff. And I mentioned uh, a couple of other categories of things like press from uh, and recommendations from other bloggers or personalities and things like that. Well, another thing that you can do outside of your site that can have a huge impact is sort of build this buzz through social media or through interactions with your audience over time about this thing. Right. So so that, you know, they know that there's going to it's going to launch on this day. It's going to be open for a week at this price, a special introductory price. So you can afford to lose some money on that because you're going to get more more meaning losing some money by choosing a lower price because you'll get more you'll get more sales. People will be excited about it. Now, and that fundamentally changes the the way that someone's landing on your site. If they have heard about it once before, let alone twice or three times, and they have the context for it and they know who you are and they kind of trust you. That, that you could have a real crappy website and still have a ton of sales from that. So anyways, that, that's, that's a few ideas. Sorry, I don't want to derail us any longer here. No, no, that's good. And I, I, you know, at the end of the day, your point is correct. I think more often or often in general, entrepreneurs don't even put something out there for sale period. They're waiting on that. And that's the first key, right? Is get something out there, have it for sale before you worry about all of this like advanced pricing strategy and the psychology of how people make decisions and all this crap, putting it out there and seeing if people will buy it, period, is the first step in this process. Yeah. So I want what I want to go back to, so the, the kind of question I wanted to get at, and maybe I didn't ask it the right way, was what information needs to be communicated on a product or sales page for somebody to be prepared to make a decision about whether a thing is valuable enough to buy it? Well, you got a lot of categories there, right? You got the benefits, the way that this thing's going to impact their life, the way the value that this is going to bring to their life. Like one of the easiest ways, one of the things I learned early on is if you're going to sell something, sell something that helps people make money <laughs> because then you could say, "Listen, you pay me $1,000, within 6 weeks you're going to make $2,000." Right. It's really great to be able to, that's a that's a perfect value, you know, benefit kind of thing that you get to express. So you got all those things. You also have the objections to overcome, right? Yeah. Here's all the reasons why you wouldn't buy this. Here's all the reasons why you wouldn't, why you aren't trusting me. And you can't explicitly say that because people, it'll turn people off, but you you have to address several of these things. Yeah. I think the, the two tactics that I always love are, um, one to directly, uh, address the objections that people might have. Mm-hmm. So just think to yourself, like, why would people not buy this? And then literally answer those, like yep. in an FAQ or whatever. The second thing is, um, there's a quote, and I don't know who said it, but something along the lines of, if you can describe the problem better than the customer can, yeah. they'll assume that you have the right solution. Mm-hmm. So make sure that you're really setting up, getting inside their mind so that they know that you understand this space and what they're going through at the time you know, um, this is where all the not demographic stuff, but psychographic and the really defining yeah. your audience stuff comes yeah. into play. 
And you mentioned uh, by name the course that we have in Fizzle on that, Defining Your Audience. That was one of the early courses I put together in Fizzle and still one of the best ones, featuring uh, services, the secret sauce, and things you need to know about Yoda in order to survive business. Uh, very, very good course. Lots of people liking it. It comes complete with three coaching calls that are extremely helpful. Again, you can get this and more. At- another, another tip, use a lot of um, sort of fluffy superlatives mm-hmm. yeah. in, your, in your sales copy. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah extremely colorful language is always super helpful when you're trying to get inside the hearts and minds of people there you go i can picture the fonts on those words that's good (laughs) um papyrus all right so one one tendency i think people might have here is thinking like okay i know exactly who i'm competing with is it a good idea to put a direct comparison between my thing and their thing on the sales page so that people don't even have to leave my site so have you seen that done? Is it a good idea? Like what should people it's think It's not a good idea. Uh, according to research, it's typically not that great of an idea because when people feel like you're, when you're asking them to explicitly compare things, they already kind of feel like they're being duped. So what you do is you open up the box in their brain that says, beware, this could be, uh, there might be a better option out there when you even ask the question, compare us to this, that, and the other. Now, this isn't always the case, um, but but this is what some research something something has has found. And frankly, it shouldn't. It doesn't have to be a, a part of of the conversation because chances are either other things are on their radar and they're automatically doing that. Or you're yeah. pro, you know if you're an Amazon, you're right next to uh, think about the grocery aisle, right? You got a gum stick of gum right there. Well, that's right next to Wrigley's and that's right next to all the other things. So there's no re- reason for Wrigley's to go compare us to the other guys. Well, Just try. However, so. First of all, the reason I like the pricing conversation that we're having is that you it's really difficult to A-B test prices. Yeah. So it is a pretty interesting theoretical conversation. Now. Yeah. The the issues around like what should be on my sales page, yeah. those we can't come up with definitive answers for that. Yeah. You could have a comparison box on your uh, sales page that says, look at us and look at product B and product C, and maybe that'll increase your conversion rate by 100%. Who, because who every, really knows? Truly, every, every product is different. Every, every product is different, and the right answer for each person is different. So, yeah. so we can give some guidelines and stuff, but pricing is really interesting to me. And I don't want to end this conversation, Barrett, without helping people understand how to actually price their thing. Totally. Um, so that's, what to put on your sales page is important, but I think that the answers are all across the map on that. All right. So let's go there next then. Let's talk about a couple different types of products or services and how we would go about pricing them. So let's start with probably the most common for our audience, which would be an ebook or an online course of some kind. So, you know, you've got your sales page there and you've gotten people down to the bottom and they're looking at the price for the course or ebook. So how would we go about pricing an ebook or a course? using some of these strategies we've talked about. I think one of the things that that I would use, because I can't, it's hard for me to look at pricing outside of the whole, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial journey uh, of just like, am I going to make this thing? Am I going to finish it? Am I going to put it out there? Is it going to get customers? Is it your first thing? You know what I mean? If it's your first thing, and even if it's it's, uh, down the road and you don't know if it's the right step to go or not, that's why I love the idea of like Gumroad has this built-in pre-sale thing where you can pre-sale uh, you know, you can say, Hey, I'm going to build this thing. I'm going to pre-sale it or pre-sell it. So you got a headline, you got some copy there, you got an image, and then you get to fiddle with the price and see if people are, are willing to pay for this thing. And none of them are getting charged. They're committing to pay for it, but they don't get charged until you deliver the par- product. So it's this great way of saying like, what are, what are, what are people willing to pay for this thing? Um, so I like that as a strategy because number one, it, it, uh, it allows you to kind of break the seal and do some work without doing much work. 
Number two, it allows you to start building a little buzz around your product. And and that initial, that, that pre-sale stuff, like that price is just for the pre-sale. Eventually, you change that price after your initial launch to what you have been convinced of after working with customers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense as, as one simple tactic for pre-sell. Does this headline copy and price tag match up to people? Does this feel valuable enough to them? Um, obviously, you have to have an audience to, 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 sell, to, to pre-sell that to even. Yeah. But that, I think it's a real big strategy that, that at least you can go like, hey, listen, I didn't get a ton. I didn't get 100 sales, but I got 10. That's enough for me to go, I'm making this thing and, and I'm going to sell it for the, at that price for them and see what, what, what we can do with it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, so, it, it, it feels like this one, I think, in particular, is a mix of talking to your customers, which I, you guys mentioned this, but I think it's important to reiterate. I, I, I feel a lot of times when people are asking these questions around, what do I price it? There's really no way around talking to your customers. I mean, you have to figure out what people are willing to pay, which I think is what we're saying here. But there's also this other part of it, and this is not a technical term, but it's what I got, which I think is kind of about going with your gut to some extent, right? Because I mean, to me, it's almost like a spectrum. There's sort of this sweet spot that you have to play around with until you find it. And on one end of the spectrum, you have undercharging where you can kind of end up almost resenting your clients or your end users because you feel almost like you're being taken advantage of because you feel like you're pricing yourself so low that it almost makes you angry. And on the other end of that, you're overcharging where to the point where you don't even feel confident saying your price. You kind of get that guilty feeling like someone's going to call you out and call you a fraud or something. Thing. Yep. So I think you have to play around until you feel confident saying what you're worth, but at the same time feeling like you're asking a fair price for how much work you're putting into it. So um, I love that stuff, that sort of triangulation, and, and that would be part of my answer. I'd say I'd caution people a little bit about using what customers say as the definitive answer on what your price should be. Um, because if you're just asking people in the abstract, like, how much would you pay for blank? Well, your answer can't be that long. They're not seeing the sales page. They're not getting the full effect of what this is. And um, it's really hard to say if that's accurate or not. It can help give you kind of a ballpark. But I would look for evidence more along the lines of um, what are competitors charging for something that's similar as like stronger evidence that that price might work. And then I would do exactly what you said. I would um, I would triangulate. I would say, okay, what feels too expensive to me? for this, like, you know, what's, what's the absolute price that just feels like that's way too much. And then what's a price that feels like, well, that's way too low. So you, at least, you know, the ballpark, it's somewhere in between there is what you're going to charge. Yeah. Um, throw a dart at the wall, pick some price that's kind of in, in between there. And then, uh, in the beginning, just back off of that a little bit and offer some introductory price for, uh, a fixed period of time. The reason you want to do that, we're talking about pricing and we're talking about value, but we haven't talked about this third idea of the the different pressures that can be created around pricing and uh, giving someone like a, an immediate reason to buy versus, um, you know, I'll think about that and maybe I'll come back. If there's a limited time offer of some sort, especially in the beginning, this is a great way to like boost your sales. If you say for the first week, um, you know, the, the price is eventually going to be $100, but for the first week, it's $59 or something. That's going to give people like a, a really strong additional incentive to buy during the first week. And it's going to make you feel great about your launch instead of you put the thing out there, it's $100, then you're questioning like, oh, is this right? Is it wrong? Um, another tactic that I've used before is this little introductory period where something's on sale for a week or two at what you feel like is a fairly low price, um, but you don't commit 
to the final price just yet. You say, this is a special introductory price of $39. Um, the final price isn't set yet, but it will be more, perhaps significantly more, and sell it based on that and see what the uptake is. If it's really strong at $39, um, then maybe you can afford to inch it up a little bit. If it's not very strong, then maybe you don't inch it up that much when it actually comes out. I like it. And there's all kinds of other problems that can factor in there, right? Is it the wrong audience? You know, could a different audience be willing to pay that amount and yada, yada. So there's a lot of kind of diagnosis that goes into that. Yep. So as I'm hearing y'all talk though, I hear kind of three different of the strategies that we talked about at the top of the hour. So, uh, some of this is kind of competitive pricing, especially if it's your first product to go out and see what similar products are priced as. So that kind of gives you this initial ballpark or world that you're playing in so that you're, it's, it's research driven. You know what's out there already. Then we talked about kind of value-based pricing. So what do you think your customers are going to be willing to pay for? And what do you think is the right price? That's kind of the Goldilocks principle. You know, it's not too low for you. It's not too high that you're uncomfortable with it but it feels kind of in that range that your customers are willing to pay for. And then a third one I think that definitely applies to eBooks and courses is this idea of tiered pricing. And so creating different versions of an eBook or course with different benefits or features to it that would get somebody to um, to a better decision about which version they want. So like, let's say you, you make an eBook uh, and then let's say you make an eBook plus a video course to go with it. And then let's say you make an ebook plus video course plus a bunch of interviews. So that's kind of like a classic tiered pricing or tiered product strategy here. Or a stick of so, gum with a lot of interviews. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. So gum and interviews, right? Versus just gum. Um, now you've got options and you would want your price to raise as the perceived value of the different product tiers are raised as well. And like you said earlier, Corbett, the idea is that the upper one is kind of an anchor. So it says... This thing, you could spend this much up there. And so it kind of makes you feel a little bit better about what it is that you're buying uh, or, or that the fact that you're spending money. And then down at the lowest end, it's kind of like the budget option, quote unquote. So you say, okay, if you're on a budget or maybe you don't need all the other stuff, you know, this is a fine option. And so what you're driving people towards with both of those two options on the sides are that middle option that says, this has a good chunk of the material, some of the best stuff in this product, regardless of the version you buy, and it's the middle price. So it doesn't make you feel cheap, but it doesn't you know, make you break the bank on that upper version. And so that's kind of where you're driving the majority of the customers to in that situation. Yep. And um, we should include in, this, in the show notes our uh, friend and uh, one of Barrett's mastermind partners, Nathan Barry, has used that technique, the tiered ebook slash course pricing model very successfully with multiple six-figure plus launches. And um, he breaks down exactly where sales come from. And the interesting thing is, when you look at the tiered pricing, you will have more sales at the lower end in terms of quantity. But when you add up the revenue that you get, especially if you make the tiers you know, right, if you space them apart just right, he ends up making more revenue from the top tier, even though it only accounts for a small portion of the overall quantity of sales. Right. Um, so there's this question here with tiered pricing of how many options, right? And, you know, we've heard Derek Halpern and everyone else talk about this jam study or whatever. And the basic outcome of the jam study said, if you give people too many options, they end up choosing nothing at all rather than choosing one of the options. And so with tiered pricing, you want to make sure you're limiting the options to a number that people can reasonably consider and compare with one another. And generally speaking, that's between two and four 
with you know fewer always being easier to choose between and two being better than just one usually. Yep. Okay, cool. So that's a, an ebook or a course. So let's think about from a, a physical product standpoint, how does that change things as far as the way you approach pricing here? I think it just sets a lower bounds to me. It sets a, a boundary where it wouldn't make sense for you to sell this thing at all. Um, unless, unless you have deep pockets and you can afford to lose money for a while. Hmm. I don't think most people can do that. So there's a lower bounds where it's your cost of goods sold plus marketing expenses, plus, you know, um, labor and, and all that. So basically you start from there and then you look at competitors and then you look at what the value of the thing is and you set it somewhere north of what your costs are. Yep. So I'm hearing like a mix of, you know, you could look at cost plus pricing, you could look at competitive pricing just based on other products like it. Um, physical goods is definitely a space where luxury pricing comes into play, right? Mm-hmm. Where if you've got just a, a superior product or superior positioning, you can you can convince people that you're buying your thing makes them a cooler person to the people they care about. And, and so that can be a strategy that comes into play here. Um, I do it every day by just trying to get people to be friends with me. Absolutely. I mean, I saw a picture of you at lunch the other day and you had this hat on, this Hawaiian shirt, and it was just like, Luxury. man, they could have sold him that shirt for like $500 because he looks cool right now. And they could have given, they could have paid me $500 to wear that shirt. Yeah. I think is what you're trying to say. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. So good. Um, uh, and I think value-based pricing is also a valid approach here too, where like we have a customer of ours who makes um, organic deodorant. So, you know, typical deodorant has a bunch of aluminums and parabens and all this crazy stuff in it that might be bad for you. And she's making deodorants that are organic oils and that, you know, prevent some of the heavy metals and other things from being absorbed through your skin. That could be positioned as a very high value item, especially if there aren't a lot of alternatives out there. So there are other, you know, there's many different ways to think about a physical product other than just what's your cost and make sure you make money on it. But at a minimum, like you're saying, Corbett, I think you have to make sure that, you know, what you call unit economics work. Because if you're losing money on one product sale, then you can guarantee that the more products you sell, the more money you're going to lose. Man, unit economics. Unite economics. Woo! Um, All right. So let's talk about uh, uh, one more here. We talked about services a lot at the top of the hour. So let's talk about a workshop, which is kind of where this um, question came from to begin with. If you were running a workshop or a live event, how do you think about pricing for that one? Um, okay, so this is, I mean, another another point where I have to go like, okay, was it, let, let this be your first one and then adjust the next one. Right. You know, it really makes a big difference when you price your first one, like really affordably, hey, it's 10 bucks, come check it out, see what you get out of it. Your next one, you can charge $100 a seat for. Yep. E- easily. Yeah. And you'll have you'll have customer testimonials, you'll have that social proof, you have those kinds of things that we talked about that you can put on your website to yeah. talk about why it's valuable to pay this money, why this $100 or $900 is going to be worth your the investment. And I think it depends on the the purpose of the first one. So if the first one is literally just to get testimonials, maybe to work out the flow, yeah. um and just to see if it's, you know, worthwhile to put on, then yeah, maybe you price it super cheap. Um if you're doing the first one and you do want to put a little cash in your pocket, then price it cheap, but also price it at a point where you think it, it feels like a value, but it's not like so cheap that people are yeah. weirded out by how cheap it, it seems is. like you a know? lot of this, a lot of the pricing debate ends up coming from t- two things. Okay. Either, either greed, greed, and, and you're not going to make great business decisions coming from greed because you got to make a business that lasts a long time. Um, but 
The other thing, which is the kind of the flip side of, of greed, is not knowing what your thing is actually worth to someone, which we've talked about numerous times throughout throughout this this whole conversation. So when you when you, what I love about doing it one time for free on a Google Hangout or for ten dollars with a, just a local event before you take it around the country and charge a lot more for it is you get to understand and you get to have this conviction inside yourself as the entrepreneur of what this is worth to people. And that's what that's what'll change the way you build your business. That'll change the way you price anything. It'll it'll it is it's that when when Steph was talking about going with your gut, you got to have that informed gut. It's got that conviction based on the value you've seen. People go like, "Oh my god, this!" I was totally confused. You just shaved off six months of my product development cycle, or something like that, right? Yeah. That changes. That changes everything. So, in some ways, how do you price? How do you price your workshop? Well, how confident are you in the value? Like, how how certain are you that what you are doing? is valuable to people and how valuable is it to yep. someone yep. and then put a dollar amount on that value. Yeah. That's yeah, so I'll, good. I'll add one thing on the workshop slash live event too. Cause I, I thought this was interesting and timely for me. I was just at a conference this past weekend at the time of this recording and there were actually a few different ticket options. So they had sort of like what they were calling a general admission ticket as well as a VIP ticket that was like double the price and, and, you know, got you a, a fair amount of additional, things that made it more worthwhile, arguably. And I just thought that that would be just thinking as the organizer of event of, the, of that event, it would have been really interesting to see how many people were buying the general admission versus the VIP. And I think that that also just on the topic of tiered pricing sets up um, an interesting sort of dynamic that you can play with, with different options for the same event. Totally. Hey, Barrett, you you want to know what that sound is? What's that? Me counting money, baby. Oh, nice! Bunch so, of one dollar bills, money, 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 money. So, I don't know what here. Chase, Chase has this weird wad of twenties. He's counting off. I don't know where it came from. I gotta I pay someone know. back. I don't want to know. <laughs> I, I want no. I want plausible deniability. Okay. Yeah. So what I hear at the end of this conversation, uh, especially from you, Chase, and I love that you stay focused on the person getting started. And the point that I get from you is price it at an amount when you're starting out that you feel okay with, that you know you're providing more value than that, simply because you get to do two things. Number one, you get to prove that you can make a dollar from someone, which is maybe the most important thing that you can do up front. So none of this pricing stuff matters if you've never sold a thing online and you don't believe you can do it. So that's number one, is start at a level that you feel like, that you feel confident you're gonna provide more value than that. And then, work towards, I, I think kind of the pinnacle here in any of these different products or services is working towards value-based pricing where you understand so well what it is that the customer is getting out of your product or physical product or service or workshop or whatever it is that you are confident in the pricing at a higher level that it's no longer about how much time is going into it. It's no longer about how many hours they're in the workshop or how many pages the ebook is. It's how much value they derive from the experience of buying and consuming your product or service or workshop or whatever. And I think the key in between day one when you launch first and pricing it at that low level that you're comfortable with and that you're okay charging uh, and getting to that top one is that you have to raise the increments over time. You can't be scared to take that next leap because starting out, the scary leap is charging, period. And that's important because you prove ability and willingness to pay of your customers. But over time, that feeling comes back. And I think most people's tendency and where this question came from was from a person who's been doing a workshop 
that he's been charging $25 for for far too long. And he's providing way more value than $25 per seat. And so he hasn't taken that next step to say, I know this material well enough. I provide enough value to the people in the seats. It's time to start making a good living off of this because there's nothing to be embarrassed about in making a good living from doing good work that provides value from people. And so you have to make sure that you don't just start low, but that you move towards something that's going to allow you to make a good living and live a good life over time. Yeah, two two quick other things. Um, so we've talked about uh, before this concept of not squandering your launch. Um, you should also not squander price change opportunities. So if you're going to raise your pricing, that's the perfect opportunity to create some sort of uh, a desire for people to buy now because the price is going to go up Yeah. Um, and to squeeze a bunch of sales before the price increase. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is I hope that there are some astute listeners out there who are like screaming at their car stereo or, or their earbuds right now. Um, because we haven't brought up something that I think is really important and a really good strategy for people who are just starting out. That is pay what you want pricing. We haven't talked about that at all. This is a great way to, um, instead of you having a hem and haw over what the price should be, just push it back on the buyer and give them an opportunity to choose the price that feels right for them. I've got an article on that that was written for us at the Sparkline Generosity Pays Results from a Pay What You Want ebook. Yeah. And uh, is a great article that kind of gets into some of the bells and whistles of that. So pay what you want. Basically, you allow people to to set their own price. And it sounds crazy, but it works pretty well, actually. Mm. Um, and it'll give you a really good idea of kind of what the upper and lower bounds are for your potential pricing. So you could always start with a short period of pay what you want, see how it goes, and then you could decide to continue or mm-hmm. you could choose one of those prices that kind of seems like the sweet spot to go forward with. Yep. Totally. And there's a lot of different principles that apply there. You know, often the one that you do want to make sure you apply to it is a suggested price or whatever. Yeah. So that people have something to compare what they're making that decision on. Okay. So all of this for me, uh, if I was to say one, are we, are we on the one things yet, Barrett? Yep. We're, we're oh, on the uh, one thing. We're now. on the one thing. Okay. So if I was going to say one thing, okay, it, it, it is it is basically this idea that you can you you can iterate on your price, uh, and that's a really big deal because you should be iterating on your product anyways. So so releasing early, selling it early for cheaper, and so that you have those initial customers so that you can understand and get that conviction of what this thing's actually worth. That's where you can set your price from. Okay. The other thing that you can do is just do a little competitive research. These guys sell for that. This thing sells for that over there. They, or there's no product out there quite like mine, but it's similar to these. If you don't know what your product is similar to, even if it's not exactly like those things, you're, you're sort of, you're, you're, you're limiting yourself because there's a lot of things that they're doing that you can see immediately and go like, okay, here's how I could do that my way. That modeling yourself on others can be insanely helpful. And so that's an, that's an, the price point is another place where you're able to say, okay, I'm going to kind of just start where, where they are and, and fiddle around and move from there and see if I can get more sales if I go less or less sales if I go more, but it's more valuable over time. There's a lot of things that you can fiddle around with this, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of levers, a lot of, a lot of knobs, but, but ultimately the thing that matters the most is if you're putting your thing out there because you will learn over time. 
If you could just get it out in five years from now, if you could put something out today and in five years from now, you will know exactly what that thing's worth. But Or you can just sit in him and ha about it and in five years from now, you won't have anything out. Or you won't. That's the thing. Like We've been at this for a couple of years with Fizzle and yeah. I have no idea if it's worth it. But a, we've a, been doing it for years now and so it's like, yeah, we don't. It, there is no right answer and actually exactly. we, we fundamentally know that. Like That's in our being. So it's not a big stress and anxiety thing anymore, is it? No, it's not. That's right. <laughs> Corbett, one thing. Uh, I'm good. Steph? Okay, so I'll just underscore something that Chase hit on because I just think it's so, so important for entrepreneurs and anybody who's selling anything, which is the role that trust plays. It's huge. And here's the way that I look at this. You know, we live in a world where we're being sold literally all the time. And it kind of sometimes feels like we walk around just bracing for the pitch that's inevitably going to come on yeah. TV, online, wherever that is. So my parting thought would be stop looking for the perfect price and instead get people to resonate with the problem. And Corbett talked about this too. So when the focus is instead shift to the problem and the solution that comes with it, and the customer feels understood, those walls start to come down and that's what that's where the trust comes into play. So just to use you know our sales page as, as just one example, we don't have a ton of features and benefits all over the place. We don't have the number of courses within Fizzle and how many hours and all these you know little minute details that we possibly could, but instead we're speaking to the problem that we seek to solve. And when you sell people on that, price becomes secondary, which is what you want because when you sell on price and price alone, it's very transactional and it's not long-term term. So I just wanted to reiterate that because it, it's about the longevity of the sale versus just trying to find this like fictional perfect price for your product or service. Yep. Mm, that sales trainer coming in. Boom. <laughs> I, like, I like it. I like how Step you say transactional stuff. Yeah. Transactional. Reminds me of my trans am. <laughs> you know what I mean? Chipping gears and yep. flipping uh -huh. birdies. Yeah, that's good. Chirp, chirp. Uh huh. Flip those birdies. Uh, so I'll, I guess I'll round us out with just kind of the other end of the spectrum. And that's that if you've been doing your thing for a period of time and you know it's valuable to people and you know that you are underpricing your product or your service or your workshop or whatever your thing is, um, it's time to change that. It's time to make a good living from what you're doing. And if you've listened to this and you've had this pit in your stomach the whole time we've been talking about pricing strategy and what the different ways that you can go about earning what you're worth and charging what your thing is worth, then you need to go do some work on this and make sure that you're charging enough for you to make a good living and build a company around the thing you care about. And so, yeah, when you're starting out, do it the right way. And when you're experienced and you're valuable, make sure you're getting your money's worth from it. Damn. Jeez, dad, I will. <laughs> Fine. Can I can I go now? <laughs> <laughs> I have been Chase Warman Reeves. I've been Corbett Barr. I've been Barrett Brooks. I've been Steph Crowder. And I'll see you there, or I'll see you on another time. Another time. Another time. So many times. Everybody's got time. So there you have it. Fizzleshow.co slash 124. Listen, there's a ton of articles in this one. Ten, ten, about 10 of them. And one bonus one. There's, first of all, 10 articles that help you with your pricing. You have to browse through these articles. Some of them are specific to your kind of business, probably. But there's also a bonus one, which is a little video from a blogging legend called Herrick Dalpern, which uh, is a joke. It's me pretending to be Derek Halpern, and I think you're going to like it. That's all at fizzleshow.co slash 124. 
Here's an iTunes review from the Julie Daniel, and it's so good I want to read the whole thing. She says, I've been quietly listening to the podcast for many months, but feel compelled to hop on here and say thanks to the team at Fizzle. I've had so many light bulb moments and heard so much more so much great content recently. I had been at a point of sheer terror with my business of having so many ideas rolling around in the back of my head, but no idea what to do with them or where to start. And now I leave each episode with concrete, realistic things I can do to grow my brand. I decided to go ahead and join Fizzle. Awesome, Julie. Thank you so much for your iTunes review. I loved hearing your story. And now, dear listener, if we are helping you, could you please leave us an iTunes review? Why? Because it helps others to find this show. And because maybe I'll read yours out on the air, too. So simply search the iTunes store for Fizzle and click Write a Review. All right, folks, no matter how hard it gets or how hot it gets, rest in the company of good friends. And remember, you are not alone. Find care, take care, serve hard, and dig in. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next Fizzle Friday. is on my side yes Yes, it is time is on my side yes it is Oh, oh my man. god. Literally lightheaded. Chase has got a little pent up energy. That's I'm the name I'm of sorry. our band. When I literally on. lightheaded.